Simple Beep, episode 23, iMac and iPod accessories. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. On today's show, we're not going to talk about two of Apple's most iconic products, the iMac and the iPod themselves, but instead we're going to look at a whole host of other products, some of which we used and some of which we only have passing knowledge of, that were inspired by them and really brought back some of these companies and really blew up a few companies <laughs> in the course of them getting to develop some new hardware for a new and revitalized Apple market. And we're specifically going to tackle some of the more vintage models of iMac and iPod. Obviously, both of these product lines still exist in the time that we're recording them, but we're going to focus more on the first generation or first couple generations of iMacs and iPods specifically. So when the iMac was launched in 1998, the most obvious feature of it to the casual observer was its design and color. And of course, the biggest feature was that it came in not beige. It came in a blue shade, which was called by Apple Bondi Blue, named after a location in Australia and was supposed to be reminiscent of the color of the waves there. Not the last time that Apple decided to name something after waves off the coast, <laughs> as we all used OS X Mavericks for a year. But this was extremely notable. There was no mainstream computer, really any computer that had been delivered in this kind of a package. And not only the package, but also the feature set of the iMac was something that was going to spark a change in what peripherals were going to be attached to it. Because the iMac was famous for ditching the old floppy drive and going instead for the way of the future, which is going to be USB. So pretty much no one who had a Mac had any USB peripherals to that point, and they were going to have to find lots of workarounds to get some of their old data onto their new machines. So both in terms of design and then also the actual hardware specifications themselves, this was really a blank slate and something completely new to go into. So like I said, the thing that probably caused the most consternation with the introduction of the iMac was its complete lack of a standard floppy disk drive. And of course, this was at a time when Apple was really at its worst and in terms of their business success, and everyone thought, well, this is really the, the final thing that will do it to them. They think that they can make computers without floppy drives. It's, they might as well just stop making computers at all. But instead, uh, as we know, with some hindsight, the iMac was very forward-thinking, and people were okay with this. And sure, many people still needed access to floppy drives on a regular basis and still wanted new Macs. And so several options for peripheral floppy drives, external floppy drives, uh, came to market. But I think one stood out much more than any of the others, and this was the iMation USB Super Disk. And at least when I think back to this time, 
I remember seeing these types of drives plugged into Macs for many, many years after the iMacs launch. Yes, same here. And they had a very distinctive look because, well, they were also white and blue plastic. Not to be outdone by Apple in some ways, and to signify that this peripheral went with the new Apple hardware, they adopted the same color scheme and tried to make it a little bit more futuristic looking, a little more rounded rectangle type of design rather than the beige boxes that Apple was clearly going away from. The interesting thing about the SuperDisc was that I almost forgot this because the whole purpose that I thought of them was as this backwards looking thing to, okay, we need a USB drive that's going to be able to read standard 1.44 megabyte floppy drives or floppy disks. But SuperDisc was actually the name of not just the drive itself, but an additional media format called SuperDisc. And this disk format held up to 120 megabytes. It turns out that the history of this format is kind of interesting. The technology for it was being developed at the very same time as the zip disk, which held 100 megabytes, so slightly less. And they were both being developed within iOmega earlier in the 1990s. And the way that the two different projects went, um, the zip disk was not backwards compatible with the floppy. It was a little bit bigger Uh, required its own separate drive, and that technology came to market first, and that was what iOmega went with, and they sold off the SuperDisc portion, and it went to iMation, and it was with the launch of the iMac that they saw their opportunity. They said, look, this is this format. You you need more storage. You need more than just a floppy disk's worth of storage, but we'll give you this single drive that's giving you a really important missing piece, as people thought of it at the time, of the new iMac and also give them that zip disk like functionality. So that's why I think these were the floppy drives that sold the most because people probably felt like if they were going to go out and spend 50, 75, 100 dollars on just a floppy drive that they thought should have been included in their computer in the first place that that wasn't a very good deal. But at least the super disk was giving them some hope for the future. Uh, for the low, low price of $150 as a standalone USB drive. And that is pretty steep, considering that we're looking at $1998. So uh, that would be probably closer to $200 today. And what you're getting for it in terms of looking at, you know, even at something like the Apple SuperDrive, the standalone external optical drive that they sell today, which is basically serving the same role. Oh, well, we don't really think computers need optical drives anymore, but if you want one, you can plug one in via USB on the side. Almost exactly the same role, same kind of design, even though it's first party from Apple. They're like, well, our computers are made of aluminum. The super drive should be made of aluminum. They should look the same. They should match. Um, And I think that's still considerably less than $150 today. I like that you brought up the modern super drive, because there's clear there's a clear pattern of using the super prefix on these things that can read different types of removable media. The super drive that we know today can read and burn CDs and DVDs. This iMation super disc could read and write 
floppy disks and super disks. And the original Apple SuperDrive was the product name for a floppy disk drive that could read not only the 1.44 megabyte floppies, but the older 400K and 800K drives. I remember uh, SuperDrive being a term because the Mac 2 in my family's house could only go up to 800K, and it was not a super drive. So even this third-party iMation product was using that same super prefix to mean, hey, this is a versatile drive that can take more than one type of media in the same slot. Of course, one of the other things that came with the original iMac was its mouse, which also got a lot of flack in the press. Yes, we could probably even dedicate a whole separate episode to Apple mice through history and the puck mouse, as it came to be known, would be a a huge landmark in that timeline. It was shaped like a hockey puck. It was hard to tell which way it was oriented without looking at where the cable was coming out. Or doing the wraparound grip. (laughs) Yeah. Which apparently some people did where because it was a perfectly circular mouse, but it was, of course, still a wired mouse at the time. So the cord did go out the directly out the top. So if you, instead of gripping the mouse as you might normally with your fingers resting on top of the mouse body and the mouse button, if you curled them over so you could basically grab the cord between your fingers and hold it that way, you could have some idea of which way it was up. Whether you held it this that way or a more traditional way, it was still pretty bad ergonomically. And a bunch of companies capitalized on this by making snap-on plastic shells that would clip onto the mouse under its one button and uh, extend it further down so that your palm could have something to rest on. And one of these, the one that I remember using on a family computer was called the iCatch. And as iMacs were later released in different flavors or colors, the iCatch was updated uh, so you could buy a green one to match your green iMac and so on. But at the end of the day, these accessories were really just $10 pieces of molded plastic. (laughs) No electronics, no technology, just a piece of plastic to make your mousing experience better. Yeah, and then in 2000, Apple came out with the Apple Pro Mouse, which was their model for the wired mice and then wireless mice for the next couple generations, which uh, some people have called the apology mouse. Yes. (laughs) Sorry, sorry, that first mouse did not work out so well. But yeah, the the original iMac mouse was another piece of its sort of daring design, but also didn't work for some people, uh, just didn't match with their workflow, or really, in this case, could actually get you all turned around and... (laughs) going the wrong direction. (laughs) Both of these products that we've talked about now were sort of immediate reactions when the iMac came out. Like I said, the SuperDisk technology had been in the works for many years, and this was just a point in the market where it became clear that it could be capitalized on. Okay, we need to design, speaking for iMation here, need to design something that aesthetically matches the iMac so that it's obvious what we're selling it for, and then this new technology will take off, even if the majority of people are only going to be using it for the backward as opposed to the forward-thinking technology. And 
In preparing for this episode, I was looking back through uh, some old Apple magazines and looking through the ads in the back sections of the magazines to see what was being sold at various times in terms of these different designed for iMac or iMac inspired uh, accessories or even just peripherals as it came to be later on. And I pulled out a uh, the January 1999 issue of Mac Addict that I had here. And I thought, okay, so the, the iMac came out in August 98. So by January of 99, we should really be like into this. We should see all of these products uh, just plastered all over the advertisements. And what it turned out was what I saw was over and over and over the Super Disc and not much else. And I skipped a year ahead into the future um, and looked at the January 2000 issue, which I have. And at this point, a few things have happened in the interim. Uh, I had forgotten just kind of how quick the iMac development cycle went. So the original iMac came out in uh, August of 98. Uh, that was Revision A, and then Revision B came out just a couple months later in October. And then in January of 1999 was the Five Flavors IMAX with the Yum campaign. And at this point, we said, okay, Bondi Blue, that, I mean, that's the canonical IMAX. But just several months later, we said, no, IMAX come in multiple colors. Um, all the same gumdrop shape, all the same translucent plastic. But at this point, they've expanded into many different uh, designs. And then before uh, 1999 was out, the iMac DV revision came through and changed up the colors a little bit again. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, I think, made the plastic a little bit more directly transparent instead of, sort of the frosted look. I think the frosted look was, I don't know if they thought that it was starting to look old. I know that it reminded me a bit more of earlier 90s electronics. There was sort of the wave of, hey, we're going to make a piece of electronics with a clear case so you can see inside as if you were going to be able to like see what was happening in there. I remember one of the wildly popular ones that sold many, many units and people might have seen at that time was the clear plastic or translucent plastic Game Boy from Nintendo, which came out in 1995, so a few years before the iMac. And this was, it seemed very futuristic at the time. Like I said, I don't know what the, exactly they thought you were going to really see in there. I guess for the general public, the concept of you know, looking at a printed circuit board was kind of novel. Nothing was actually, you know, it's not a robot. It's not going to move in there. Um, and any sort of like blinking lights inside have just been added to increase the novelty effect. Uh, but there was this desire to sort of see what was going on inside. And um, so that design change happened a little bit too. But like I said, things were moving very quickly. And in this year and a half from the IMAX introduction, this is when all of the other companies, not the people who had a product waiting and just needed to, you know, like Imation, you know, they, they were really pushing one product that went with, the new IMAX, all of the other 
hardware and peripheral companies were starting to get on the iMac train at this point. And so you can open up one of these ads and just see a host of questionable design decisions <laughs> all involving blue plastic. The funny thing is that it's always blue plastic, even though you know it, it makes sense. They must have just been moving more slowly in terms of their design and production. They were more like, you know, they were the more giant companies, a slow moving elephant or something where they were not keeping up necessarily with the fact that Apple's like, well, we got five colors now. We've got three other colors now. And they're like, we just put out a printer with blue plastic. It's great. You'll love it. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is that at this point, by about 2000, almost all of the peripherals that were coming out. So we had the IMAX, the IMAX DV. Then later on, we got into the, um, the same color Bondi Blue G3 Tower and the original iBooks, which came in blue and tangerine. So the, everything is colored plastic at this point, just as with today's Apple in 2015, everything is aluminum and glass. And all of these other companies were following suit, basically. One that really went all in as their, their business model, another one, but maybe took a little bit longer to get their full product line out was uh, Mac Alley. Uh, and they sold uh, more or less input peripherals, but they sold I everything. So beyond just the design that they were going for, and actually we'll we'll put a link to this in the show notes. Uh, you can it's via the Wayback Machine, so you can go back to about 2000 and see exactly what their pro- product lineup was, and it has photos. They're all going the clear plastic route, but they're not really trying to match a particular color of iMac. Lots of blue, but nothing that you would recognize as, oh yeah, that's iMac Bondi Blue. But all of their products had I as a prefix. And at this point, Apple was apparently okay with this. They were fine with the fact that people were trying to associate their product with the iMac, which was taking off. Because, again, they were at a point of weakness. And... and really seeing any companies rallying around the iMac and its success and contributing to the viability of the iMac and the success of Apple was probably something good at this point, at least so far. We'll get to counterexample in a moment. Um, but like I said, Mac Alley sold I everything. A list of their USB devices that they sold at this point included the iMouse, the iBall, the iHub, the iKey, the iStick, the iPocket, the iSuite, which I think is just a mouse, but it's iSuite, S-W-E-E-T, like <laughs> sugary. I don't know. The iShock, which is like a PlayStation controller with a USB you know, gamepad. Um, the iMouse Junior and the iMedia key. So all of these were various USB input devices that were specifically geared toward the max of that time. I think the one that I saw that looked kind of the most garish was the eyeball, which is a uh, desk-mounted trackball. It also might have the worst name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> one other company that was in on the transition from older beige Max to the iMac was Griffin. And I think I've mentioned this product 
even recently on the show because I own one. Um, it's the Griffin iMate, which was an ADB to USB adapter. So ADB, the Apple desktop bus, was the way that you plugged in keyboards and mice on pretty much every Mac from the beginning all the way up through uh, any of the beige G3 era Power Macintoshes. And so many people had keyboards and mice, perhaps even third-party keyboards and mice that they liked, enjoyed, found comfortable, but they would not work on the new iMac. And perhaps people will get their new iMac and say, well, I'll give the new keyboard and mouse a try. And then they find that they're unable to use the puck mouse. So they say, okay, well, I don't really need to go buy a new mouse. I could, I have a perfectly good working mouse. I just need to be able to plug it in. So the iMate is a very simple external adapter that goes from ADB to USB. Still works with modern Macs, any Mac with a USB-A port. Um, so that excludes only the, the very newest MacBook. Um, I guess then you could have an adapter to an adapter. I think someone might have even posted a, a photo of something like that uh, recently. Or it might have been getting a Apple Extended Keyboard 2, which you know, many people think is holy grail of keyboards, <laughs> at least of Apple keyboards. Uh, it might have been getting that, I think, through an iMate, through the camera connection kit to an iPad. <laughs> oh, I have seen that, yes. Um, so these devices are still out there. They're still working. Uh, I had a little bit of an interesting story when I went to finally buy one because I didn't buy one in 2000 or right when the iMacs came out. We had an Apple Extended 2 keyboard that went into the basement, into storage, and then many years later I decided, hey, I want to use this thing. Um, I'm doing a lot of typing, and I think it'll feel good to use this nice full-size keyboard. And so I went to buy one, and I went on Griffin's website, and they still had it in their online store, and they even let me place the order. And then about two weeks later, I got an email from them saying, you ordered this, but we don't make those anymore. <laughs> I mean, I was shocked. This was like three years ago, 2012 or something. <laughs> I was shocked that they were still selling them new, and it turned out that they weren't, and I had to go buy one used. Um, but they are still very functional. Uh, one of the things I forgot or did not know was that they also had basically an internal version of this called the G-Port. So when the Graphite G4 Tower Power Max came out, they also were lacking ADB ports. and But they had, I think it was PCI ports inside, expansion slots inside. So this was an expansion slot uh, card with then a ribbon cable that went to an ADB port that you could plug into your new tower uh, and actually then be able to plug ADB devices directly into the back, just like the good old days. I'll go quickly through some of these other things. I had mentioned that there were <laughs> when you open up these ads, and I'm going to uh, post pictures of some of these ads just because I think it gives a good flavor for how these things were being marketed at the time. I remembered some of the products, but I didn't remember the marketing. When you dig into these, you, you see just the third-party companies who are either more or less trying to get something to match 
the original iMac or even a later iMac. And again, the the marketing companies like Mac Alley, they were in 100%. All of their products started with I. Some of them, the names made sense. Some of them, they didn't. But they're saying, look, we are a company that makes peripherals for the iMac. That is our entire business at in 2000. Whereas other companies, larger companies, just said, hey, we need to like capitalize on this market because it seems like this iMac is going somewhere. So uh, we'll put photos of these or links to these in the show notes as well. Uh, Epson, maker of printers, sold an inkjet printer that was the Stylus 740i. Of course, I. <laughs> Got to put that in there somewhere. That was the identifier because they sold an Epson Stylus 740, which is the exact same printer, beige. They also made the Epson Stylus 740i, which was mostly... Uh, like frosted white plastic, and then the top cover where you would put in the ink cartridges is blue. It's a color of blue. It is not Bondi blue. This is a problem, was that, you know how when you're trying to come up with a color scheme for something, or like matching an outfit, you don't want to have colors that are too close to each other, because they're actually going to clash and look worse? Yeah. That's what happened with many of these products. If you actually bought like four or five of these products, and actually the iMate is one of those. It, I, I look at that and I go, this would not have sat well next to an actual original iMac. If you had all of these on a desk, it would just, it would have to be jarring because it's jarring just looking at these tiny little thumbnails of them in a product ad. So there's that one. It's mostly white, got a blue cover on it. Um, you could go a little bit more fancy. You could get a Xerox laser printer, the Phaser 840 Designer Edition. It's the Designer Edition because it also has blue plastic. Here, however, the entire body is a different shade of blue plastic, and the cover is white. So we're getting more and more into the blue plastic. And my favorite one, I think I've seen one of these in person. I think I've also seen the beige version of this is the Agfa SnapScan flatbed scanner uh, 1212U. They didn't go for I. They went for U for USB. And I remember my family had an Agfa scanner, an earlier one, I think, that the model number ended in S because it was SCSI. Mm -hmm. um, but the 1212U is 100% except the power button blue plastic. And would not look good at all next to that Epson printer. <laughs> but that was just the market that uh, that sprung up. And like I said, some companies were more devoted to really working with Apple and developing a product line around how the iMac was pitched and what its features were. And there were the larger electronic companies that just wanted their piece of the pie and wanted to make it look like they were giving an extra nod to the iMac and its success. One last totally wacko <laughs> accessory that I found uh, while preparing for this is called the iNap. Uh, and it is a dust cover for the original iMac. It is, it appears to be semi-molded plastic. You, you know how like some people have, uh, 
covers for their cars. Yeah. If they're going to, you know, not be driving them for a while. They kind of just look like a tarp, but they're actually shaped like a car. This is that for an iMac. It covers the body of the iMac and the keyboard and the mouse. You can tuck them all under this little cover and your computer can have an iNap. Last but not least uh, regarding iMac, inspiration and, well, plain knockoffs was, you can say that imitation is the sincerest form of trademark infringement (laughs) with the E-Machines E1 and Daewoo E-Power Windows PCs that came out shortly after the iMac. These were some of the first all-in-one Windows PCs, and they just did not care. They just crossed the line and said, we're going to make something with translucent blue plastic, try to fool people, sell it for 400 bucks, and hope that they buy it. <laughs> Apple, of course, is well-known for being a somewhat litigious company, and I think completely justly, in this case, went after both eMachine and Daewoo, and these products were completely sued out of existence by Apple. They obtained a worldwide injunction, meaning literally not just within the United States, not that you couldn't ship them to the United States or sell them in the United States. Anywhere in the world, they were forbidden from continuing to make and sell these products, and they went away very quickly. But we will put pictures of them in the show notes. If you weren't really following Apple News at the time, you probably didn't even know that these existed. But of course, for people who were on Apple's side, following the Apple News at the time, you see the iMac come out, you know that Apple really needs to get back on its feet. And to see someone say, oh, yeah, they're being successful, we'll just take that and, you know, put Windows 95 in it and it'll be great. It was doomed to fail those products. Now let's take a little digression to Apple's relationship with Harman Kardon, the speaker manufacturer at this time. Yeah, so this was one of Apple's partnerships with a third-party company, not just an outside company taking cues from Apple. And we've seen this with many other companies uh, more recently in Apple's history, where they'll actually enter into some uh, business agreement to have uh, hardware jointly made and marketed by the two of them. Like uh, most recently, as we record this, the Apple Watch now has Hermes editions where it's not just the leather band, but uh, uh, specific watch faces that work with them. And when Apple was working closely uh, with Beats before their acquisition, these sorts of partnerships. Ed mentioned the rapid iteration of the G3 iMac product line. It seems like very quickly we went from having just one color to multiple colors to revisions to the hardware where the the plastics got a little brighter and minor design changes happened. When the line went to slot loading optical drives, and I think that coincided with the change cases Ed mentioned, the two little speakers in the front of the iMac changed from being whatever off-the-shelf parts Apple had to being actual Harman Kardon-branded Odyssey speakers. And that, I mean, like, they they were 
marketed as such, as having better, improved quality. And this kind of opened a window for different Harman Kardon Apple speakers. Immediately with the launch of these iMacs, we got the iSub, the big bulbous clear plastic subwoofer that you could combine with these iMacs to calibrate the the kind of total sound profile. And it would all work natively with the macOS system software. And you didn't have to fiddle with any controls or anything. And if you're not familiar with the iSub, it looks, it is in some senses a very stripped down design and very functional. It works the same way that any other subwoofer does, but it looks like a jellyfish. <laughs> yeah. And because it's completely clear plastic, uh, sort of domed uh, shape, which really kind of matches with the curves of the original iMac. And the the sound is basically produced up this center channel. And as, as far as I understand it, I'm far from an acoustics expert, but uh, it was very functional. And also, again, because of the partnership matched this design aesthetic more closely than perhaps some other products, like I just mentioned, did. And I think also you mentioned the revisions that we're going through here. This is around the time of the iMac DV and that transition from the frosted like plastic to the clearer translucent plastic. And so the iSub was clearly deliberately designed to look good with those because it's that same clear plastic. And because it's color neutral, it's not going to clash. And most of us have probably seen this iSub not on its own to complement this kind of limited range of iMac, but as part of a product bundle called Soundsticks. And these are still on sale today, I think. Yeah, they're up to the Soundsticks 3 iteration is the current version. The Soundsticks bundle includes this iSub, the clear plastic subwoofer, and two stick-oriented arrays of four Odyssey speakers, four little tweeter speakers on each stick, and then two sticks, ideally one for left, one for right. And as someone who occasionally will look at galleries of people's setups, uh, Daniel Bogan runs the setup website. There are like subreddits. Lots of people like to take photos of their Mac in its setup context and share them with the world and show off their their Mac in its connected gear. I would say over half of every <laughs> of all the setups that I've seen have included these sound sticks. They seem to be a mainstay with the Mac community. To bring it back, so we have uh, these iMac G3s that have two Odyssey speaker tweeters in them. We have the sound sticks that have a total of eight Odyssey speakers in them. We have the iSub, whether it's alone or part of the sound sticks. And then I believe with the release of the G4 Cube, Apple released what it called its pro speakers, which were independently housed individual Odyssey speaker tweeters in a set of two. Right. And these were branded as first party Apple products the same way that, well, obviously the internal speakers on the later iMacs were also thought of as a first party Apple product. 
while the sound sticks and the iSub, if you bought those off the shelf, were going to come in Harman Kardon packaging. One of the interesting things about the Apple Pro speakers is that they too had some proprietary connectors. The later iMacs, including the flat panel iMac, aka the iLamp, <laughs> and some of the other Mac desktops at that time had not just a headphone port, but a special Apple speaker port. And you will show, we'll put in the show notes, there's a comparison of what you're used to as just a standard stereo mini plug or headphones port versus this Apple speaker port. And it was slightly shorter. And for the Apple Pro speakers, it also carried power for the speakers, which I, I that had to have been the major technological difference between them because I've used these speakers and they can drive a pretty loud sound. And that would probably be unlikely just over a headphone port. And you know that like, to get more than just average level headphone sound, you're going to need an amp with some external power. For speakers, you're going to need something to drive those speakers. And these this era of Macs had this special port that would deliver that. And of course, that's nice because it cuts out some additional wires in the setup. And to be honest, those those Apple Pro speakers did give a very nice, rich sound without a subwoofer even. I think whatever model of iMac G4 that my family bought was high enough that they came included. And I remember they, yeah, they would get pretty loud and pretty full. Yeah, and they did uh, come at least as an option, like I said, with the flat panel iMac. So it was interesting that this was able to be a product that could transfer across two different design eras of the iMac, because I think they did look good with both the all-in-one and then the flat panel on the swinging arm. So we've talked about accessories that capitalized on the iMac's uh, design and USB uh, ex- exclusivity, as well as these uh, these speakers that were again specific to a, a narrow range of Apple products. And I also want to dive into uh, another very specific range of products, and these are accessories for the iPod's remote port. We're all familiar with what today is the lightning connector and its predecessor, the dot connector, through which there's a whole ecosystem of things you can plug into your iPod and iPhone. Some of them approved by Apple and some of them not. (laughs) Right. I I know that in our mall here in Ann Arbor, if you go to the Apple store there, there's the nice Apple store. And directly across from that is the like knockoff phone accessories kiosk. I'm sure you can buy a cheap lightning cable there, but it probably won't do you very well. (laughs) I start to see lightning cables and knockoff, uh, like very tiny USB Walwart plugs at like the checkout counter at gas stations now. Oh yeah, absolutely. And those are definitely not MFI certified. But for two models of classic iPod and the original iPod mini, there was this remote port on the top next to the headphone jack. 
Uh, it's called this because Apple shipped an inline remote control that uh, had like play, pause, forward, backward, volume up and down, which is basically all served now by the little clicky button on our iPhone earbuds. Uh, but you know, it, it allowed you to control your iPod without taking the actual device out of your pocket. Right. So at this time, the iPod and many other similar devices didn't have the technology to use the pinouts and on the standard headphone plug. The third was it the third pin because there's like two pin and three pin versions. If I'm getting this right, <laughs> they didn't have the third pin that does that uh, that control. So you needed to have those pins in a separate plug and they would be adjacent so that you could either use a single device that then plugged into both ports simultaneously, or you could use any headphones that you wanted. And I remember my mini disc player had a similar thing. So I don't know if the, I think they were proprietary. I think each company had their own sort of development of a remote port. The notion being that basically for many of these other companies, like my Sony mini disc player or whatever it was, sharp mini disc player, only the sharp remote was going to plug into that, but you could still use headphones. Well, same idea for the iPod originally, but then the standard was at least open enough or you know extremely simple. You just have a couple pinouts, and if you, as long as the plug fits, you know, not very hard to reverse engineer. So there would certainly be a market for this whether it was approved or not by Apple. So the this port not only carried data, because it obviously has to send the signal for different operations, but it also provided a little bit of power. And this created a small ecosystem of accessories that took advantage of this port, which I think was dominated by Griffin, who made the iMate we previously talked about. And I think, anecdotally, the most popular one out of this was the iTrip, the FM broadcaster, so you could listen to your iPod in the car without going through the tape deck or an auxiliary port. I used tape decks until I had a car that didn't have a tape deck, and that was probably only about five years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so for those of us who never had to suffer through this, you would plug this iTrip into the top of your iPad. It would use both the headphone jack and the remote port. And I think the remote port just for power because you couldn't send a signal over your radio back into the iTrip to like seek forward or backward on your iPod. Uh, and then you would look for a, a vacant frequency on your FM dial, which was usually at like in the high 80s or the late 107s and tell your iTrip to broadcast at this frequency so your car could pick up the signal and you could hear your tunes. This, of course, had its benefits and drawbacks. Mostly drawbacks. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly drawbacks. I mean, if you were just driving around town, you would know your local radio stations. And hopefully there would be something. You know, if you're in a big city, there might not even be anything, really, <laughs> that you could do. Um, but you might be, you you know, the one station that works really well. And, you know, as long as you're driving around town, doing your commute or whatever errands, then you are fine. But I think most people, you know, given the name, the iTrip, people really wanted to ha take their iPods on long road trips where they would want a lot of music or they would load on podcasts or audiobooks and be able to listen for hours and hours. 
And then if you're driving a long distance, the surrounding radio stations are going to change as you move from city to city. And you would just, all of a sudden, your iPod would start to fuzz out. <laughs> and hopefully you had a co-pilot who could fiddle with getting the next best station all lined up. Also, one of the kind of fun things that you could do with this if you had strong enough signal and not enough interference is if you were on a car trip with multiple people, like multiple cars, and you were driving from place to place, as long as you stayed near enough to each other on the highway and you told the people in the other car which station you were broadcasting on, you could share the music and have one person DJ for like all 10 people in your group across two cars. That would have been cool. I never thought to do that. Again, if you like, if like you have to pass a truck or something and then you get separated apart, like there goes the music. <laughs> That's cool though. I would not have expected this little thing. We'll put links to all of these in our show notes, but this is a pretty little thing. I would not have expected it to have uh, even that wide of a radius to get to multiple cars on the freeway. Yeah, and more recently, there there was a brief time between my car with a tape adapter and the current car I'm driving that has Bluetooth, where I did have to rely on an FM transmitter. And I borrowed it, and it was, again, like all of these things become basically just commoditized eventually. Um, you know, buy one for five bucks from the, the gas station checkout. Um, and that was the kind of one like I was using. It was, you know, um, just like no brand, no connection to iPods or anything. It's just like plug headphones here, make FM happen. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go through a couple more of Griffin's iPod remote port accessories. The next one was called the Air Click, and it was basically an RF receiver that plugged into your iPod and it came with a little wireless remote. So if you were, say, one of those people who would drop your iPod into a speaker dock, you could still walk around the house and carry a little remote in your pocket to seek forward and backwards, control the volume, and so on. There was also the Griffin iTalk, which was a little microphone that would plug into the headphone and remote port. And you could dictate uh, voice memos into it, and they would be saved as, I think, WAV files natively into the iPod storage. And this is actually pretty cool because you have to think about it. this is before the iPod was viewed as like an accessible OS. This is really just when it was a music jukebox and maybe it had calendars and contacts and notes. And the little paratrooper game. And the little paratrooper <laughs> game, exactly. But uh, this is, I think this must have taken some considerable engineering and Griffin would have had to talk to Apple because they, there wasn't an app that they could include with this hardware uh, this had to talk to the system at a level. Right. In terms of the hardware, though, it must have been the case that at least at that generation of the iPods was the, the headphone port, you know, as as we know with, I think, the audio ports on current Macs, it can be either sound in or sound out. So again, you have to be able to get the system to know to toggle that from in to out or for, in this case, from out to in to go into the recording mode. And then, like you said, Brian, if, if you're going to record a WAV file and it's going to go somewhere into that iPod storage, that's not just a transparent file hierarchy. They needed to know what was happening behind the scenes there. But 
at this point, Griffin had a whole suite of products, still do have a whole suite of products. It's obvious that they have a good relationship with Apple and that even if some of their products are kind of pushing the boundaries of what the devices can do, that they are a business partner in some ways, if not like officially, like Herman Carden was putting out something actually white labeled under the Apple name. Uh, they definitely know each other. The last Griffin accessory that uses this remote port that I want to highlight. I had never heard of this. <laughs> and fortunately, we don't need these anymore because we all have iPhones. Yeah, it was, it was sold under the name iBeam and it was actually two separate little dongles. Uh, one was a simple LED flashlight, like Ed said, basically providing the same functionality as turning on the flash of the back of your iPhone. And one that was a honest-to-goodness laser pointer if you wanted to use your iPod as a flashlight or a laser pointer in a way that would prevent you from listening to music through a headphone port, then these were the accessories for you. One last Griffin accessory that I remember, which was probably one of the most outlandish accessories that they made. Uh, coming on the heels of the iTrip and going all out, it was called the Griffin Road Trip. And I can only describe this as sort of a robot arm, which has a very large, uh, very large slot that would fit all different types and sizes of iPods. So it would fit the standard or the classic iPod. It also fit um, at least some of the nanos from photos that I've seen. This very large piece there. Then there was a LCD display under it with controls, and that did the FM transmitting. And then it had this articulating arm that was almost like a foot long that would then go down and plug into the... Uh, the charger port, or as they were called, cigarette, cigarette lighter ports, in the car dashboard. And then this thing would stick up and put the iPod sort of more at eye level. And I think the whole point was that this was supposed to be like the all-in-one solution for your iPod in your car. You just plug it into this dock. I think it would automatically find the radio stations trying to fix that problem. Um, and would charge at the same time and would also take up an inordinate amount of space inside the, uh, inside the front of your car. Um, but I remember I had a friend who had one of these and absolutely swore up and down by it. Um, he probably like, I would look back at it kind of fondly, but kind of like, thank goodness we have Bluetooth now. Griffin wasn't the only company making accessories that used this iPod remote port. There was also the Nyko iTop, which basically was a remote using the remote port, but it was a small piece of plastic that was the same width of the iPod, and it just replicated all of its controls uh, across that top plane of the iPod. So I guess if you're walking around with it in your pocket, you can just press buttons at the top of the iPod instead of pulling it out or reaching down the side to click forward or click backwards. I wonder how many people actually use this. It seems like a very niche product. Yeah, by the time we got to the Clickwheel iPod, unless you were actually changing to a completely different song or a different album, I think 
at least I speak for myself, you got used to the fact you put it in your pocket with the controls facing out. And you could just, you knew where, where, um, you know, forward and backward and play pause were. Yeah. Uh, I was one of the few people who bought iPod socks. I actually still have one of them, one from the five pack to this very day. A long lost iPod accessory. That's great. And I would do the same thing. I would have the fourth generation click wheel iPod in a sock and you could lightly feel where the click wheel was without triggering anything. And then, yeah, you would know where forward, backward, play, pause, all the buttons were. Uh, Another iPod model that had its own limited (laughs) accessory market was the third generation iPod shuffle, that little pillar that had no buttons, no buttons except on-off shuffle. And uh, so everything had to be controlled through the inline remote on the headphone port, which we've been talking about. We're all familiar now. It's on the ear pods and earbuds that come with our iPhones. Uh, But if you wanted to use your own headphones with this iPod, you would have to get some kind of remote extender that would put the play, pause, forward, backward, and volume controls on your headphone cord. And so there were a couple of examples. Uh, We'll put links to at least one of them in the show notes. But these were really tough sells because at this point, Apple's operating under economies of scale. There, There are no basically no moving parts on this. And the two gigabyte model was sold for $59. The whole iPod was $59. And if you had a favorite set of headphones you wanted to use to it, you'd have to buy a $15 to $20 adapter, essentially a third of the cost of the iPod itself just to make it work. But people had them and people sold them. Yeah, well, there are still people to this day who will use their multi-hundred dollar headphones with preamp plugged into their iPhone. So that that probably even outdoes it in terms of percentages, but it's a very small market, whereas it looks like this accessory was really designed to be a broadly appealing mass market accessory. And while we're on the iPod shuffle, there is one product I would like to talk about because I bought it and I don't know if anyone else did because it was so dumb. <laughs> but it, it was called the Pocket Party Boombox, and it was for only the first generation iPod Shuffle, the white, like stick of gum sized iPod. And this was a very, very tiny two tweeter speaker piece of plastic where you could slide the entire iPod into the top and it would kind of sit flush. Uh, the entire thing was probably the size of. I don't know, five iPod shuffles stacked on top of each other, including the one that you were plugging in. And it would play sound, but not great sound. I would, I felt dumb the very minute I I received it and plugged it in because the sound was so bad. It was probably worse than the sound we get today, like coming out of the one mono speaker on the bottom of our iPhones. At this point, you could have just like plugged in your headphones and just turn the volume all the way up. Actually, I think that's exactly what it sounded like. (laughs) So not all of the iPod accessories were big hits, but they were all there to capitalize on a big market. And that basically wraps up our quick little tour through uh, accessories 
designed to complement very specific ranges of more classic Apple products, the iMac and the iPod. And like I said, these are entire almost industries that sprung up because Apple was able to get back on its feet and turn around the company with two really majorly successful product releases and product cycles with the iMac and then with the iPod. And we know that today with the iPhone and the iOS ecosystem as a whole, it's even much larger, just millions and millions and millions of units. And that people all over are still trying to capitalize and get their piece of the accessory market. It's a little bit more interesting now that Apple does have a little bit more of a hand in it and that you don't need to just change the color of plastic on an existing device to have it suddenly look like it goes with your modern Apple hardware. There's a lot more behind the scenes uh, needing to get approval and know those tech specs of what was the dock connector for many years. I mean, there were hundreds, thousands of accessories that we didn't cover in that long era that post-dated what we were talking about today. And then, of course, the again, with a with an architecture shift or a hardware shift, when we came to Lightning, which is the current standard, there was much gnashing of teeth that all of the old dot connector accessories were headed out the door. But the accessory market for Apple will be there for this foreseeable future, but this is where it all started with uh, blue plastic floppy drives and uh, little FM radio adapters. We've mentioned show notes extensively, so if you'd like to check them out, they will be at simplebeep.com slash episodes. And you can also send any feedback. Maybe you had one of these accessories or one we didn't mention, either through our contact form at simplebeep.com or on Twitter at simple underscore beep. And this episode's show notes will definitely have some image galleries, like I said, the shots of the products themselves, and also the marketing that went along with it. I think that really gives you an idea, and you'll get to see for yourself just how badly those blues clash against each other. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to get in touch with us individually, we are also on Twitter. I'm at ecormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. And I'm at bsuto, B-S-U-T-O. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.